Hello and welcome to A History of Electronic Music, Part 15. Welcome to the show, my name is Paul Sheeky, and before I get on with the show, a bit of marketing news. Um, there has been for a while a MySpace uh, set up for this podcast, so if you're on MySpace, uh, please go ahead there and join, and hopefully I'll, I'll check it a little bit more often now, and uh, then I can friend you on that. And there's also, I've entered the 21st century as well, in joining Facebook, and I've put Uh, this podcast on Facebook as well so you can go and like it on Facebook if you like and I'll be updating that a bit more often and let you know where the progress is on the next episode etc etc and also if uh, you do like the podcast then please you can email me at info at triptreeproductions.co.uk and also feel free to put it on any uh, other websites you like. Uh, and if you're on any synthesizer or electronic forums, then please feel uh, free to put it on there and advertise it for me. Thank you very much indeed. Um, but now on with the show. Uh, today I'm going to be exploring early synth pop, uh, mainly from the UK, but also from a few other places too. But before I do, it's good to take a look at what was influencing the early proponents of this style. Uh, most of it's already covered in earlier episodes of the podcast. There was David Barry's Low album, which is very influential. Uh, Brian Eno and Roxy Music, Kraftwerk, uh, Giorgio Moroder's Disco, and a variety of electronic TV and film music. Um, but there's a couple of artists that I haven't covered too. The British duo Tonto's Expanding Headband released two electronic albums in the early 70s before deciding to concentrate on production for other artists such as Stevie Wonder. All their music was made using Tonto, which is an acronym for the Original New Timbrel Orchestra, and is essentially a lot of analogue synths joined together. There's two Moog modulars, four Oberheim SEMs, two ARP2600, and many more, including some unique units especially designed for Tonto. The result is the world's largest analogue synthesizer. Tonto's creator, Malcolm Cecil, had this to say about it. I wanted to create an instrument that would be the first multitimbral polyphonic synthesizer. Multitimbral polyphony is different than the type of polyphony provided by most of today's synthesizers, on which you turn to a string patch and everything under your fingers is strings. In my book, multi-timbral means each note you play has a different tone quality, as if the notes come from separate instruments. I wanted to be able to play live, multi-timbral, polyphonic music using as many fingers and feet as I had. And here's Tonto in action. This is a track called Tranquilium. Tonto's Expanding Headband, or at least part of it. Um, that was from 
an album called Tonto Rides Again. It's actually released in 96, but I'm not sure when that actual track comes from, whether it's a, a later track or whether it actually is from the early 70s or not. Um, but I couldn't get hold of anything off the original Tonto album, unfortunately. Uh, the other influence that I've not previously mentioned are a duo from New York who called themselves Suicide. The dominant musical form in both New York and the UK in the mid to late 70s was punk rock. Suicide took the confrontational punk aesthetic, but instead of guitars and shouted vocals, used a broken Farfisa organ and a vocal style that was more rock and roll than Johnny Rotten. Their style has retroactively been called synth-punk. From their self-titled debut album, this is Ghost Rider. Ghost Rider, Ghost Rider by Suicide from the album Suicide from 1977. So the synthpop pioneers were influenced by a great variety of music, but the overriding feeling was that punk's do-it-yourself attitude had made anything possible. Expensive instruments and years of musical training were no longer prerequisite for musical success. But as Martin Ware of the Human League explains, it wasn't punk music they admired. All the infrastructure around punk we absolutely loved. It's just that the actual music we saw as being quite old-fashioned. And, and having, uh, being, being a bit of a one-trick pony. So what we did was we took the attitudes of punk and gave it a different context, i.e. let's make music that nobody's heard before. That was Martin Ware of the Human League and that clip was taken from a BBC documentary called Synth Britannia that was on last year I think and I've taken a few little interviews from there because there's lots of good stuff in it. So in certain sections of young people there was a desire for something more musically interesting than punk. Although synth pop kind of developed simultaneously in several British cities its earliest expressions can perhaps be found in the industrial city of Sheffield. It was here in an art outreach project called Meat Whistle that Martin Ware and Ian Craig Marsh met and began collaborating musically in a variety of strictly temporary ventures. After experimenting with punk and rejecting guitars as too hard to play, the duo teamed up with Addie Newton to form The Future, with the specific aim of trashing the past and redefining pop music. It's worth noting that another Sheffield group were also doing a similar thing at the same time, and that's Cabaret Voltaire. But as that's now considered to be industrial rather than synth-pop, I'd like to deal with that in a separate programme. Although guitars had been rejected, it was listening to the newly released Trans Europe Express and Donna Summer's I Feel Love that pushed them firmly in the direction of synthesizers. They were aided, as were other proto-synth-pop groups, by the increasing availability of affordable synthesizers, which either came in kit form with electronics magazines or were fresh off the boat from Japan. Notable is the Mini Korg 700S, a dual oscillator monophonic synth that was used by both the future and the Liverpudlian outfit Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark. Marsh and Ware used the money from their day jobs to add a Roland System 100 to their 700S and began making music like this. This is a track by the future called Last Man on Earth. Reminiscent of the Doctor Who incidental music of the time, its minimalism is an enforced one, as they didn't have any tape recorders to allow multi-tracking, so it's necessarily simple. 
Creating rhythms was difficult too. They had to create the percussive sounds with noise waveforms on the System 100 and manipulate them as best they could. In this track, they got around it by using the synths to produce a gated noise track to act as a rhythm track. It's the appropriately titled The Year of the Jetpack. of the jetpacks by the future from 1977 the future's tracks also featured lyrics by all three members that were randomly generated using a program they wrote for the computers they used in their day jobs martin ware explains more and um we had a system called carlos cyclic and random lyric organization system which was kind of like a, a kind of word fruit machine that would randomize um adjectives, nouns in the correct form, so you get something that made sense at the end, but kind of not really makes sense. It was based around a William Burroughs type, uh, um, a William Burroughs type attitude towards uh, quasi-random composition in terms of meaning. Um, and a lot of it was about using uh, words as a tool and also, you know, in an onomatopoeic sense, you know, the sound of words was more important than the, than the meaning. It was like creating uh, uh, the voice as a, hum- uh, as a tool. So we actually, in fact, some of the songs were uh, all three of us alternating these random phrases, uh, in particular Blank Clock Springs to Mind, which I thought was very weird and funny. Your face, the clock. Martin Ware speaking there, followed by Blank Clock, and that was taken from uh, one of the editions of The Golden Hour of the Future, which is a compilation of all the future's early music, basically. So that's where that interview came from. After these experiments, Addy Newton took on the role of regular vocalist more often, but as the other two felt he couldn't really sing, they dropped him from the band by moving all the equipment and leaving him a note. I don't think they talked for a while after that. As a new vocalist was required, they approached Phil Oakey, and he came up with some lyrics for an instrumental they gave him. They liked the lyrics, but Oakey didn't like the name of the band, so they decided to change it to The Human League, which was taken from a sci-fi board game called Star Force. As a result, the first track by The Human League was Being Boiled.
listen to the voice of Buddha Saying stop your sericulture Little people like your offspring bottle up So God's studying Buddha's watching Buddha's wedding Being Boiled by The Human League from 1978. That track went on to be their first single release on the independent label Fast Product in June 1978. During that same month, the band started gigging and decided to add a director of visuals, Adrian Wright, to spice up their lacklustre live shows with custom-made slide projections. They began to make a name for themselves and were asked to support many established artists and even got a thumbs up from David Bowie who in 1979 said Watching them is like watching 1980. But they weren't the only people aiming to change the future of pop music. In London, Daniel Miller was also dead against guitars but did want to make his own music in the German electronica style. After buying a Mini Cork 700S from Macari's music shop in London, he produced two highly original electronic tracks. Following positive feedback from his friends, he decided to self-release the songs in true DIY fashion, and TVOD, backed by Warm Leatherette, was released as Mute Records No. 1 in May 1978. The artist's name he chose was The Normal. This track, Warm Leatherette, was inspired by J.G. Ballard's psychosexual novel, Crash. Warm Leatherette Warm Leatherette Warm Leatherette Warm Leatherette A tear of petrol is in your eye the handbrake penetrates your thigh. Quick, let's make love before you die. On warm leatherette. On warm leatherette. Warm leatherette. Warm Leatherette by The Normal. Also in London, an established rock band were also drifting in a more electronic direction. Ultravox had been signed as a result of their live act in 1976, but had failed to generate substantial sales. By 1977, they were beginning to experiment more with electronic instrumentation, as is evidenced by the two alternative versions of the song Hiroshima Mon Amour. First, the rock version... electronic version which was one of the first tracks by a British artist to feature a drum machine a Roland TR-77 here it is Voices down 
by Ultravox from the 1977 album Ha Ha Ha. Their next album, Systems of Romance, which was produced by Connie Plank in Germany, drifts even more into electronica, both musically and lyrically, as you can hear from this short extract. Listening to the music the machines make I let my heart for a moment Listening to the music the machines make I felt the floor change into an ocean Short extract from Just For A Moment from the Ultravox album Systems of Romance from 1978. But commercial success still failed to materialise and the band were dropped from Island Records and split a year later with singer John Fox going solo. We'll catch up with him later. However, they were a strong influence on synthpop's first true star, Gary Newman who discovered synthesizers by accident in 1978. I went to a studio to make a punk album, um, which would have been my first album. And when I got there, um, in the corner of the studio, there was a mini mood. Luckily, it had been left on this sound, which is a huge, big, bassy thing. And the room shook. I just realized you can just press one key and all this other stuff happens. You know, there was a massive amount of power in them and depth i just never heard, never heard anything like it before. Gary Newman there, talking again on the Synth Britannia documentary. Electing to keep conventional drums and bass in his tracks, Gary replaced the main guitar parts with synth parts. The result was most striking on his second album with Tubeway Army, and it led to Synthpop's first number one hit in June 1979. You just heard it in the background there, this is Our Friends Electric. And Tubeway Army are Friends Electric, based on uh, robots that are called Friends in a strange sci-fi novel that he uh, wanted to write one day. And that was also from the album Replicas from 1979. 
Gary followed up Replicas almost immediately and released his first album under his own name later in 1979. The Pleasure Principle continued the gloomy science fiction theme started in Replicas, with tracks like this one that imagines the last living machine. Newman says this about it. Its own power source is running down. I used to have a picture in my mind of this sad and depressingly alone machine standing in a desert-like wasteland, just waiting to die. A bit like a kind of depressed Wall-E, then. Uh, this is a track called M.E. from the album The Pleasure Principle from 1979 and that was of course sampled by Basement Jacks in their track Where's Your Head At? Newman's success opened the floodgates as electronic pop music had finally found a market. Former Ultravox singer John Fox released an entirely electronic album in 1980 that explored his fascination with the alienated urban environment. London seemed almost empty in the 70s. I used to walk around the streets and there were newspapers blowing around in a car in the distance and grey concrete walls and everything seemed gritty and, and, and lost somehow, like we'd lost direction. And uh, I wonder what that was about. Again, that was from the Synth Britannia documentary. And from the album Metamatic, this is No One's Driving. from the album Metamatic and there's no one driving again quite inspired by J.G. Ballard's crash as a lot of these uh, people were because it was the flavour of that time other former Ultravox members were also busy at this time Billy Curry found himself hanging around a nightclub called Blitz along with a plethora of other post-punk musicians who were forging a new identity both in the way they dressed and in the music they wanted to make Several of them got together to form Visage, which was fronted by Steve Strange. In early 1981, they scored a hit with this. 
to Grey by Visage from 1980. Visage also included Mitch Yore as guitarist, and he found he enjoyed working with Billy Curry, so they decided to resurrect Ultravox with Midge on vocals. Produced again by Connie Plank, the resulting album was their biggest success to date, and the title track got to UK number two in January 1981. This extract features the fast section, which nicely demonstrates the typical synth-pop features of a motoric beat and repetitive synth bass line. It also features a less typical viola solo. of course by Ultravox apparently kept off the number one spot by Joe Dolce's Shut Up Your Face oh well anyway uh, also in London Daniel Miller's release of TVOD had led people to believe that Mute Records was a professional and well established record label so he started receiving numerous demos of weird electronic music the first one he liked enough to release was by someone calling himself Fad Gadget Although often called industrial, this track has enough of a synth-pop vibe to be included here, but I may well come back to some more fad gadget when I do the industrial programme. This is the excellent Ricky's Hand.
excellent. Uh, that's Fad Gadget, Ricky's Hand from 1980. Daniel Miller was also trying for pop success at this time with the world's first virtual band, the Silicon Teens. Although the band were publicised as having the members Daryl, Jackie, Paul and Diane, these were just played by actors and all the music was done by Daniel under the producer name Larry Least. Their album, Music for Parties, consisted mainly of rock covers in a synth-pop style like this. Long distance information, give me Memphis, Tennessee. Help me find a party, trying to get in touch with me. She could not leave her number, but I know who placed the call. Cause my uncle took the message and he wrote it on the wall. But there was also some original tracks, such as this. Silicon Teens and that was called Sunflight and the track before was Memphis Tennessee both from the 1980 album Music for Parties. Unfortunately the Silicon Teens were not hugely successful but another mute signing was to secure the label's future prosperity. However as Depeche Mode are a highly prolific and influential band on their own I've decided to give them their own show which will be next episode. But in the meantime, let's go to Liverpool, where Orchestral Manoeuvres in the Dark, or OMD, had been directly influenced by Kraftwerk after going to see them play live. This is Wolfgang Fleur, again from the Synth Britannia documentary. The interesting thing afterwards, there was a knock at our backstage door. It was a band. They were called Orchestral Manoeuvres in the Dark, and the leader Andy McCluskey was really astonished and happy that he uh, was meeting us in person. And he said, you know, guys, you have shown us the future. This is it. We throw away our guitars tomorrow and buy all synthesizers. That was Wolfgang Fleur talking in the Synth Britannia documentary. And he was talking about October 1975. A few years of gathering equipment, songwriting and playing live followed until OMD secured a release of their debut single, Electricity. This version is the album version, which was also used as the third single release, which is the most successful, but still not a chart topper.
Hulk MD Electricity from 1979 and from the their self-titled first album Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark and despite three attempts at making a hit Electricity didn't quite make it uh, for top 10 success they had to wait until the release of this from their next album Organization <laughs> Enola Gay by Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark from the album Organisation, which is obviously a little nod to Kraftwerk's early name. And that was from 1980. And that year seemed to see a crossing over of many synthpop acts from underground obscurity to chart success. But one group seemed to have missed the boat. Despite signing to Virgin in May 79, the Human League had failed to achieve the success they promised. Their two albums for Virgin, Reproduction and Travelogue, are generally quite morose and reflected both urban living and a fascination with fictional dystopias such as A Clockwork Orange and the science fiction novels of Philip K. Dick, hardly standard subjects for pop songs. After a top 40 single failed to materialise, internal disagreements caused the band to split with Phil Oakey and Adrian Wright retaining the Human League name and Martian Ware forming a new production outfit, British Electric Foundation, or BEF. Early BEF work differed little from the early Human League style, with tracks like this. BEF and very unlikely to be a hit because it's called Music to Kill Your Parents By and that's from 1980. Uh, the addition of an old meat whistle pal, Glenn Gregory, on vocals made BEF into a band who took their name from this part of A Clockwork Orange. Who are you getting, Freddy? Gogli Gogo? Johnny Zhivago? The Heaven 17? Heaven 17 were to have a funkier, more commercial sound partly in a bid to outdo the Human League, who are using the same studio as them, as Martin Ware explains. When we were doing the day shifts, they were doing the night shifts in the same studio. They were making day, we were making penthouse and pavement. I've never been so motivated in my life, believe me. I said, we're gonna make it stylish, fantastic. Finally, the shackles are off, we can start using other instruments because it's, you know, the original manifesto is broken but we're still going to make it predominantly um, electronic. Penthouse and Pavement, as their first album was to be called, also signalled a thematic change as they reacted against the election of a Conservative government with tracks like this. Democrats are right apart Across the blue white ocean Reagan's president-elect Fascist got in motion Generals tell him what to do Stop your good time dancing Train the guns on me and you Fascist like advancing 
2017 and fascist groove thang from the 1981 album penthouse and pavement and if you're a heaven 17 or bef fan they're both playing uh, the roundhouse in london in mid-october but they're probably sold out already anyway um meanwhile the retention of the human league name came with some complications for Oki and Wright, as they inherited a commitment to a european tour that began two weeks after the band split with only days to find new members, they famously asked two girls they saw dancing at Sheffield Club, Crazy Daisy, to join the band as backing singers. The tour was completed, but they were still under pressure to produce a hit single. Virgin decided to team them up with established producer Martin Rushent to try and polish their sound. Moving from Monumental Studios in Sheffield to Genetic Studios in Reading to escape the unhealthy atmosphere of working close to their ex-band members, the group found themselves working with the latest electronic equipment. We did something that could only be done at that stage. While we were doing it, they were bringing the machines in that enabled us to do it. For instance, the very first Lindrum, I think, that arrived in England came into our studio and we took the drums off sound of the crowd and put the lindrum on and without that prob- probably it wouldn't have worked that was phil oki from the human league talking again in the synth britannia documentary the lin lm1 which was probably what he was referring to because the lindrum that was called a lindrum wasn't actually released until the year after that album was released but yeah the lin lm1 drum computer was a revolution in drum machines it was the first one to use digital samples of real drums, had pitch and volume control and a separate jack output for each drum, and it was programmable in either real-time or step mode. The addition of quantization and swing functions meant it could easily become the heart of the rhythm section. And here it is in action on the track you heard in the background there, The Sound of the Crowd. The Sound of the Crowd by The Human League from 1981. That single gave them their first top 20 success and spurred Martin Rushent to continue working on an album with the band, even though he was perhaps doing a little bit more than a producer normally does, as he recalls. To a large extent, I was their band. I was certainly their drummer because I programmed all the rhythms and made all the decisions about the grooves. The resulting album, Dare, was their biggest success and gave them their only UK number one single, Don't You Want Me, which I'm not going to play because you all know it. But what you may not know is that Martin Rushent decided to remix Dare and secured a release for the album, Love and Dancing, under the name The League Unlimited Orchestra. 
Here's how Simon Reynolds describes it in his book Rip It Up and Start Again, post-punk 1978-84. A masterpiece of editing and mixing board wizardry, Love and Dancing took thousands of man-hours of intensive sonic surgery. Russian created complicated vocal effects by hand, cutting up tiny bits of tape and then gluing them together until you'd got that stuttering effect. By the end of the process, the master tape of Loving Dancing contained so many splices, 2,200 main edits and about 400 further small edits for repetition effects, that it was dangerously close to disintegration. Luckily, it didn't disintegrate, so we can have a listen now, and this is Don't You Want Me, the Martin Rushant instrumental version. Unlimited Orchestra from the album Love and Dancing. Don't you want me to art in Russian instrumental? And that's from 1982. And by this time, synth pop had reached its commercial peak in the UK, with acts as diverse as Soft Cell, Japan, and Duran Duran all scoring top 10 hits. But synth pop wasn't just a British phenomenon. To save a bit of time, here's a little medley of some international acts, starting with two tracks by Devo.
small medley of some non-UK synth pop around that era. From the US we had Devo with Snowball and Big Mess from two of their later albums which moved in a more synth pop direction but they took it from a slightly different direction to the UK ones. Uh, From Canada we had Men Without Hats and The Safety Dance. From Belgium that was Telex with Reality. And from Switzerland, Yellow with Bostik. And they were all from around 1980 to 82. From roughly 83 onwards, synthpop became a victim of its own success. And numerous bands popped up that watered down the original revolutionary manifesto in search of chart hits. Here's music journalist Simon Reynolds, then Martin Ware, in a, another bit stolen from the Synth Britannia documentary. It sort of starts, uh, I guess, round about 83. It was just overdone, it was saturated, there was too much synth pop around. 
it's all very well it was being on a synth, but it, actually the actual m m melodies and the way the songs were structured were really pretty traditional and quite trite, you know. It wasn't that inventive as electronic music. Somebody's got their eye on me Perhaps I should invite a the middle of the 80s, there was not so much encouragement from the record companies to do more experimental stuff. I mean, that initial supernova of post-punk uh, was dying away, and and slowly but surely, the the cancerous growth of market-led uh, A&Ring started invidiously creeping up and and blandifying and homogenizing the uh, the musical market, in my view. Uh. Simon Reynolds and Martin Ware from the Synth Britannia documentary and also around that time established synth-pop acts also found themselves using more and more traditional instrumentation until the music they were making was just more like pop with some synthesizers. So the golden age of synth-pop was over and so is this podcast. Uh, next time as I mentioned in the program I will be talking about Depeche Mode uh, the, throughout their whole career and again you can friend me on MySpace or on the thing on Facebook. And one final thing, I've written an, uh, an essay that you might be interested in with my proposal of a synthesizer orchestra. And you can find that on my website, triptreeproductions.co.uk. And it's on the essays section. So have a look at that if you might be interested. And I'm going to leave you with a classic from 1983 by The Arrhythmics. Sweet dreams. Mm -hmm.